0: Welcome to Getting Curious. I am Jonathan Van Ness, and every week, you guessed it, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Sarah C. Bird, where I ask her, what's the history of the fashion of cults? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. And my oh my, do we have quite the show for you? So you may remember in 2018, we recorded an episode with Dr. Natalie Feinblatt about the psychology of cults. Today we're gonna to talk about the fashion and style within American cults, communes, utopian societies, religious sects, and spiritual communities. And to talk to us about that, we have no one better in the world than Sarah C. Bird, who is a fashion archivist, historian, and educator. One of her areas of expertise is fashion within, quote, alternative communities. And what we're asking today is, why are Close so majoring cults? Slash, how are you? What's happening? And how's your day going so far? Hi,
1: I'm great. I'm super psyched to talk about this. I think it's a really important subject, and it relates to all kinds of important things about fashion and clothing and our identities, too.
0: So picture it. You're walking down the street, minding your own business. You pass a group of people. They're dressed the same. Can you tell if they're A, following a trend, B, wearing uniforms, or C, are they all in a cult?
1: I mean, who's to say they're not all the same thing? You know, it's all that context, right? What's the context in which you're seeing these people? What's the context of their individual expression? Like, you know, this is where I love doing research and thinking about these things because I don't know, maybe they're all in this like cult of fashion or they're in
0: FLTS. So if that were you and that did happen, do you jump in front of all of them with your arms stretched as far as they can go and say like, excuse me, I'm a research scientist. I need to ask all of you about these outfit choices right now. Or do we like do something more subtle?
1: Way more subtle. I'm very subtle.
0: Yeah, we're we're more subtle. I was (laughs) guessing. One thing that I was really fascinated with back in our episode from 2018 with Dr. Feinblatt is that like there is basically like four things that like qualified you as a cult. Control, manipulation, confession, and unquestioning belief. And one thing that she said was most religions like qualify for at least two. And then we learned in our episode about faith-led activism, we learned that like 80% of people in the United States identify with some religions. So like... We are all like all up in like culty psychology, like culty-esque things, even when we don't necessarily think so. And one thing I'm curious about just before we even get going, how do you define cults in your work?
1: Well, one of the things that that episode also talked about are like the different scholars who have published about this. And one of the books that was mentioned, this Margaret Singer's book, The Cults in Our Mist, talks about those two types of like cultic groups. And one of them is about a lot of focus on control, which I think is a really important aspect and something when you're looking at fashion, you want to look at like who's in control and what expression of control is coming out of it. So that's a criteria. But the other thing that I thought was super interesting in that book is that she talks about this other type of group, like the self-improvement type, where it's about not necessarily having like a super tight small inner circle or committed following, but having like a growing, expanding, more like a consumer following where they're buying the classes, they're buying the books. And my brain immediately was like, oh my gosh, aren't we talking about fashion, right? It's all about like our self-improvement and like finding the space where we feel good. And like a lot of times that's tied to this consumer model of like, we buy the thing to feel good.
0: When I was reading about your work, it's like the expertise in fashion within, quote, alternative communities. Can you tell us, like, what alternative communities means? Sure.
1: So I started using this term more often than just cults. I mean, cults are so hard to define and so hard to identify and they change over times. And so I started using this term alternative communities because I wanted to look at the widest pool of candidates possible. So I could look at people who aren't necessarily meeting all the criteria for a traditional cult, depending upon whose definition I'm using or looking towards at that time.
0: Yes. Okay. I love that.
1: And one of the reasons why I use cults, but also don't use cults in my language is because of all the judgment that is imposed on that. So a lot of times we see that associated with someone who's doing an act of transgression or it's used by law enforcement or the media and it becomes a little loose. And so I think it's really important for me to think about how I can be presenting this in a way that's not imposing my judgment or bias onto these people as the first layer of starting out.
0: I think that's really important, like going in with an open mind and like really checking what you're like, perceived biases are before you start to research. So, like, yay for you for having like ethics and stuff. That's amazing. We love. I and mean, that kind of answers my next question, which is like, what other types of alternative communities are there? But there's like the cult of fashion. I think you could say the same for like when you were talking about that, it made me think like Kylie lip kits. It made me think like how I need skims. So, am I a cult member of that? I am. You oh you my are. God. No, 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 there, no. <laughs> this is
1: so kind of like, One of those fun things when we like start to remove this cult fashion from like these alternative communities and talk about it in our own like fashion consumption space, because there are these interesting overlaps and connections of like, maybe for some people, like they identify with Kim K and like how she presents herself to the world and they want to align themselves with that. Or maybe they're like,
0: you know, I just dig this product that she makes sister knows how to make an undergarment and that's not my fault that she is a genius at undergarments.
1: And she is working with people who are really good
0: Mm. because Mm -hmm. it's not just
1: her. She's not back there sewing these things together.
0: So is this like a case study in how cults start for the last 10 minutes? You get someone in and then they just go zero to 100 on your ass.
1: Uh, I don't know. But what I love about what this tangent took us down is this thing that I'm a little bit obsessed with and I think is really important in understanding how to approach fashion studies. And it always begins with the body. So you're talking about the body and you're talking about how you're controlling your body through this external garment, right? And that changes your internal relationship to this Right. So that's the beginning of fashion. Like anytime we put anything on our bodies, that's fashion, in my definition of it, right? You do your hair, you do your makeup, you get a tattoo, whatever, you put on like skims. You are participating in this fashion. And that's really important to think about when you're looking at like why people are wearing what they're wearing, right? What's their relationship to the body? Is it an ideal that you're looking for? Is it someone else's ideal that you're working towards? And you can see, like, hints of that and there's, like, interesting spaces to theorize about things in these groups as well as in, like, everyday life about why people are modifying their bodies in fashion.
0: Ah, obsessed. So what's particular about American alternative communities versus, like, international or, like, other ones?
1: Well, I didn't necessarily, like, start out thinking about this as just... American-based project, the whole idea kind of came to me at first when I was in LA for an extended visit and was just like, what's up with all of this like mysticism vibes and all this like alternative energy that exists out there, right? And then I started looking into like stereotypes of cults and using fashion and like, why do we think about these things? And then I realized through the research, there's this huge kind of American kind of path of these like alternative religious groups that begins back in the 18th century when it's still settler colonialism happening in a big way so i think that's part of why i was like you know what actually let's be intentional about this there's this idea that the united states is founded with freedom of religion and freedom of expression both allegedly covered under the first amendment And then I was like, so that makes a good case for there should be this individualistic expression allowed, right? No matter what you're choosing to identify or practice in your faith, you are supposed to have that freedom, but we know that it's not the case. So it made me really think about like, how does America enforce control through clothing if they do, right? Or if our culture does.
0: The word modesty came up in my head and like how important the idea of like modesty is in fashion for so many religions, specifically so many like Abrahamic religions. Like it's really important in a lot of sex of Christianity. It's really important in a lot of sex of Judaism. It's also really important in a lot of sex of Islam. Like covering your fucking body. It's a big deal. And that settler colonial aspect, especially like I think about like, or all of those, like, colonial, like, derogatory terms for people that, like, aren't civilized. Um, So that's really interesting. So what did you find, what I hear you saying, is that, like, that idea that we were built on freedom of expression and freedom of speech and, like, freedom of religion is kind of, like, dogma propaganda that we get told when we're little, but it doesn't, like, equate to, like, what we actually were free to do.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I think you know that clothing has this potential to speak for you even if you're not speaking so the way that you're presenting yourself is really important to recognize. So that's one part about these groups that I was really interested in seeing how the clothing might speak to their identity that they were choosing to express through their clothing, not even just related to modest speak but like, what if you're wearing the wrong color, right? Mm. What if you're wearing like a thing that aligns you with the, kind of like wrong side of a party. So there's that social kind of like cultural conformity as well, not just about religious and the body. But also I think it's really important for me to find ways to expand our history of fashion and reframe how we think about the history of fashion and what it is, right? So not everybody is kind of taught that this crazy idea that I have that fashion is everything that you do, right? We think about it as like the will. the the white, the European American, like luxury designers, that's fashion, right? But everything everybody's doing throughout history is fashion. So let's find more ways to promote research that says, this is the fashion of this. This is the fashion of this.
0: One thing that that reminds me of is, like, listening to the 1619 Project and understanding the role that the cotton industry played in, like, the formation of the United States. And that, like, so much of our economy and all of, like, transatlantic, like, chattel slavery and, like, the enslavement of millions of people was, like, all built on cotton. And I think that's one thing that we have learned on Getting Curious, that, like, there's really no subject, zero subjects, that, like, colonialism, racism, sexism, misogyny, patriarchy, uh, homophobia, trans, transphobia, ableist, all of those things like it touches like every subject like there's no subject that's just like cut off from that reality because that reality has shaped the last like 400 years of like our existence.
1: It's all part of it.
0: What are some of the groups that you have spent your time like researching?
1: So like I said, I try and get this kind of like big open-armed grab of as many groups as possible. But the ones that I was thinking about most often lately are the United Society of Believers, which we know as the Shakers, who got their start in the United States in the 1770s and are still in operation today. There's two surviving members left, I believe, at this point. There's the Oneida community, which operated in the mid to late 19th century, the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which we know as FLDS. And then I also love Heaven's Gate and the Source Family.
0: I need to know everything about them um, that you know. Like, not in, like, a threatening way, but, like, I'm just a little obsessed with your work. Okay, so how do the groups that you study use fashion to express themselves? Like, what values or beliefs do each of these communities express through their style? Because we're, like, shakers, for instance. Like, it's all about, like, We are not fighting. We do not get down with fighting ever, right?
1: There is some pacifism in their belief system, right? So they're not engaging in in kind of like military conflict. And that was a problem. And that lead up to the Revolutionary War. But they have such a like beautiful design aesthetic. That's why we see them kind of enshrined in museums with their like furniture and goods. And they were really dedicated to like kind of finding the purest forms and celebrating like the function of form. And I think that's something that we see even in their clothing. Um, Like I sent over some images of things that are in some Shaker Museum online collections. So if you look at those, right, so there's this range of colors and like maybe not everybody is going to think these are like super beautiful Dresses, there's a lot of, like, muted tones and kind of, like, long sleeves, higher necklines, collarless, like, natural waist or, like, a higher, pure waist.
0: Oh, my God, they're fucking chic, these capes and these robes.
1: Right? And they had a patent on those cloaks.
0: The overcoat on page 22 is so Handmaid's Tale. Like, the overcoats, like, the red overcoats, but it's, like, pink here, but that's so interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, those styles have like a long history in what everyday people are wearing. Like you can find people that are in like the artisan class in like the 18th century wearing styles just like that. So I think when we're looking at costumes and things like the handmade style that are promoting these sort of like cultic ideas of a different alternative reality, those costume designers are doing that research and they're probably looking to things like this.
0: Yes, that's so cool. Um, we will put the links to those images, you guys, so you can uh like pause and look at them. How often can a group style be traced back to their like leader style? Does the leader of a cult or an alternative group like always say like you must do this, or does it ever come from like a collective idea?
1: Both. Obviously, it's really hard to generalize, but like the Shakers, there was a time period in that mid nineteenth century where. There's a pair of shoes that I threw in that.
0: Yes. Shoe.
1: I love those shoes. They're so amazing. But the, a visitor is talking about how they look like they're worn in the style of the founder. Good fashion historian goes back and is like, but wait, you know, is this shoe appropriate to the time? So it is reminiscent of the style, but because we don't have any of the material culture, the artifacts from Mother Anne herself, we can't say for sure that she wore those shoes, but it does create this connection. But then other groups, you know, start to just gel together, right? Maybe they have a communal kind of like clothing pile. And so everybody's style starts to like, kind of mesh together. Just like, you know, if you think about like college situations, when you find a new group of friends, and then you all start sort of like, oh my gosh, I love that outfit. I want to go buy that thing. And you develop that communal identity without having any rules spoken or written about
0: it. So it might be that like things are prescribed from a certain like leader or elder and then like more people within the community might take those prescriptions or those kind of like rules and like create like what the fashion of that group is.
1: Kind of or the leader will be really kind of strong in their dictates about that you know like the flds is a good example of how that changes over time because i look at that community especially focusing on short creek and this raid that started i think in 1953 and how there's a lot of documentation photographs of the members and they're wearing these clothes that are like full of prints they're still somewhat modest but they're not really out of fashion per se and then we fast forward to the nineties and early two thousands, there's that like pastel color palette, like one dress pattern that's allowed to be used. And it's sort of just like continually gets like focused and everybody in that community that is presenting as a woman is wearing that style of clothing. Right. So it doesn't matter if you're a baby or a grandmother, you're all dressed alike.
0: Was that inspiration in that community to like, showed that they were trying to like hearken to an earlier, like better time or something for them. Like what was the inspiration for that direction from
1: Warren Jeffs?
0: Yeah. Warren Jeffs. Um, Was that something that was like his thing or he was like, we got to like get these people looking the same. Like they got too much freedom out here. Like we didn't make them look like what, what was it
1: from all of the accounts that I've read and seen in the documentaries the members who have left all the former members talk about this change that happens from the time that his father had been in charge to when he takes power. And there is a change, but there's an account in one of the former members book about the process of leaving and all this that talks about how that 1953 raid sort of became this like moment of like kind of fixation and like, there's a lot of attention paid to it. So we see some elements of the styles carrying over from that. But I think that even if Jeff's wasn't intentionally setting out to make a connection, I think what my suspicion is he has created this connection to this earlier, like, initial settlement of Mormons in the West by sticking with this idea of the prairie dress, right? And we see that language used to describe those clothes. So it's like, you're part of this long history and that's your identity. But it's so much about control.
0: Right. So in the case of, like, well, really everyone that you've studied, how do these groups use fashion to set themselves apart from non-members?
1: Well, in a lot of groups, the Shakers, the Oneida, They have a really clear, like, difference that emerges. The Shakers kind of retain more elements of an older style for a longer period of time. So they start to look more kind of different as years go by, decades, centuries. Oneida set out and they were like, we want to be different. We want our women to wear this style of clothing, like, referred to it as a short dress. Other people will see it as a bloomer costume, which is basically like, one of those 19th century like styles where you have a giant skirt and then it's cut below the knees and then you have a pair of trousers underneath. So it's Mm. like you're wearing pants and it's so radical. And so they look really different, but they're not necessarily going out and about and parading outside of their community in this outfit. So it's the people coming in, like journalists, visitors saying like, these people look really different and weird and There's some really harsh language that they use to describe these folks. Other groups like the Source family, I mean, they were living in Hollywood, um, in Los Angeles. So they're like very much of the styles of the time. Even when they're making their own clothing, they still look editorial.
0: So the United Society of Believers, darling, the Shakers, the 1770s through the present. Although only two practicing members today. The fuck? What's happening with the Shakers, honey? They got like a whole population problem?
1: Well, I mean, one of the key beliefs of the Shakers was... uh, No fucking? Yeah. They restructured how they envisioned families. So it's co-ed, communal living. Like, there's a separate house and rooms for the brothers and the sisters. And, like, they refer to Mother Anne, right? The elders kind of take on that role. But they're not having... Sex to procreate, so their numbers are not growing from like being born into it. So they're bringing in people, basically converts to the religion, to grow. And we see that big expansion happening in the 19th century, especially as like all these other new religious movements sort of like
0: implode on themselves. So they come to America, and they're English, and it's like the 17. I think it was
1: like 1771, maybe 1770s. Definitely the time when they arrived.
0: And then the revolution like happens like not that far afterwards. So they're kind of like really, they're like, ew, so you're not down for the cause. You're just going to like come over here to these colonies and like not fight for us. And then they were like, yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do. And so their rules were like, no fighting. We love furniture. We love clothes. Who was mother Anne? What was her deal? She was like the founder.
1: She was the founder. She grew up in Manchester, England, England. She converted to this Shaker-like group that happened there. They were a branch of the Quakers, and all these folks would get into a lot of persecution because their religious practice was so fully embodied. The Shaker name comes from like the way they would move their bodies in whatever free form initially they wanted to. So she was kind of getting a lot of prominence in this English sect, and then moves after a lot of persecution to the kind of colonies sets up camp in upstate New York, outside of Albany. With like just a handful of folks.
0: And then basically like they were like discouraged from doing it. So then as everyone like started to die, they were like just trying to convert people and now there's only two.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, think about it. Like, do you want to join a community that's regulating your sexual activity?
0: well, fuck no. But that feels so sad that they've been around since the 1770s. There's only two left. What are their deals? just, what are their names? They're just up there in New York State just making outfits. They're
1: actually in Maine. There's a lot of these like Shaker historical sites that you can visit and learn about them. And so, the two surviving members live at this Sabbath day lake in Maine, which I've been to and it's a beautiful space and everything. And so they definitely do a lot to educate people at those museums about cultural life and style. But a lot of these religious movements, you know, they evolve, right? And the Shakers kind of kept to a certain set of principles. And I think over time, you know, their numbers grew and decreased to the point where your past guests citing research about 80% of people having like a religious kind of like identity or following. How many of those people necessarily like go to church every day or would join a group that sort of like is a really drastic change of lifestyle, right? You're living a very radical change in that.
0: Were they really about like enforcing like gender guidelines? Like did women have to wear kind of more scurry things and men had to wear more like panty things? How did they enforce and express fashion within their alternative community?
1: So with the shakers, what I think is so interesting is that, They didn't have strict rules that were written down or necessarily even spoken to my understanding about what people could or couldn't wear. So initially, while Mother Anne's alive, it's a you-do-you situation, right? And you have to think, like, this is a time when you can't go to a department store Mm -hmm. and get your clothes. So you're wearing what you can make or the fabric that you can purchase from another, like, maker, essentially. So as we get into the 19th century, we start to see those laws after her death, like they become the millennial laws. All of these beliefs get put into writing. And there was some debate among the community about whether or not to keep it an oral tradition or to put it in writing. And once they put it in writing, then it gets revised and revised and revised. And so we start to see changes. There's a page from one of those millennial laws, I think from 1845, It's in the Shaker Museum that talks about the clothing. And it's not very specific in that moment. You know, it's kind of like, don't wear a colored ribbon on this day. Once you were in the meeting house, which is where they would practice their public rituals, that they had to take on more of this uniform appearance. And it's happening when they're growing in numbers, too. And we start Uh to see in letters between kind of like communities and between members, the elders saying like, well, there's a lot of improper dress going on. There's a little bit too much of a fullness in the skirts. The pleats are supposed to be this many, this number of inches apart. So, you know, let's make sure that we all keep this uniform aesthetic going because the idea they have to worship is one body, right? Mm. So, that's an important guiding understanding of that belief.
0: So, when Mother Anne is alive, it's like a little bit more loosey goosey, but strict. And then she passes away. Then the shaker starts like really like write down what the things are. And that works for a while. And then, like, does the rigidness of the fashion do you think that that had anything to do with like, it's like, dwindling in numbers why did it go from like being kind of powerful to like not so powerful do you think fashion played a role in
1: that I think that's a great question and I don't I don't know if I can say for sure but I think it's really important to kind of note too that that strict kind of uniform like style was really more for when you're worshiping Right. And what you were wearing when you were like working on whatever your tasks and your day to day, there's a lot more individuality. And you can see that in like the photos and documentation. So you're not necessarily like signing up to wear like the same dress every day of your life. Right. So I think my guess is that it would be more about the structure and less about the clothing, because that would be secondary, because it does change and adapt as we go through the years.
0: Right. So then, the Oneida community, I had, like, never heard of them. Do they have, like, a more, like, unique, like, perspective on gender and fashion? Like, what's their deal?
1: So they're kind of an interesting community. Essentially, they practiced a form of religion called perfectionism.
0: Mm, Sounds fun.
1: Yeah, don't get misled by what we think of perfectionism. And I may oversimplify these things to an embarrassing degree, but for the sake of conversation... Essentially, the idea was that you could kind of go through confession and like basically find a way to live your life free of sin and therefore perfect on earth. And you don't have to wait till you get to heaven to experience that. And they emerged out of this like big wave of religious groups that were coming up in New York State. So they set up this intentional community that was all about communal kind of like assets they were very self-sustaining, they were very successful. Some people might be familiar with Oneida like silverware. At some point in time in the 19th century, Oneida collapsed. They were like, we can't do this anymore, in large part because their founder fled to Canada because of statutory rape claims and oh. legal issues. So you can understand what might be happening in that group. And so they disbanded and they turned their shared assets into this like company where they all got stocks and kind of holdings. But in their belief about, like, dressing and fashion is where noise the founder, thought, you know, what women were wearing in the 19th century was really, like, an exaggerated difference between these two gender presentations, right? So you have the male side of it where you're wearing, like, suits, bifurcated garments, like, pants, right? And then you have the women in these very, very big skirts with that hourglass shape.
0: Because this is, like, mid-1800s-ish, right?
1: Correct. So think like a giant circle around your waist that's just a tent around your
0: legs. And then essentially kind of like tight on the top for women, very like rigid corseted men had more like tailcoat kind of like pants, like a vest, like a button up shirt. Like my nightmare. I don't want to wear the girl's outfit. I would not want to wear that hideous men's outfit. Like hate it. And that's
1: what I think is what we see noise is kind of like inspiration. And there are other groups that adopted this like combo garment of like trousers under the dress.
0: So that's what they do. The Oneida, they they're like, fuck this. We're going to like blend it a little bit.
1: Exactly. So they looked at these other alternative groups that are like, Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Let's take this on. And like the history of that style, mostly we think it comes out of like, the style of garments worn in Turkey, voluminous luminous bottom trouser-like pants and them, wraps on top and tunics and things like that. So it becomes this like hybrid. And that's what they adopt for the women in the community. And so it's very practical. You know, you don't have the skirts kind of like dragging through the dirt. You can have a little bit more mobility of movement. Um, and they're working in things like agriculture. They're working in things like the women doing like Work inside counting and like business practices, in addition to like these communal childcare rearing situations, because they also practice like an extreme communal commitment to each other. So when you marry into that group, you don't marry a person, you marry the group. So they called it complex marriage. And there was this idea that individual commitments were kind of like too big of a sin. So you had to really like be a communal practitioner. So individual relationships had to be like approved by the committees and everything was done by committee. So if you want to buy a new watch, you have to get it approved by the committee. If you want to have a child, it has to be approved by the committee, you know? And so they're really managing resources in this. And so that's where the stress also like shows up. It's like, maybe it's more economical.
0: When does the founder have to go to Canada? Like, when does that Oneida group kind of, like, hit the skids?
1: Towards the end of the 1800s. I want to say, like, 1870s, 80s.
0: How did, like, outsiders perceive them? And how much did they use their kind of, like, fusion of gender norms at the time? How did that, like, play out for them and how people, like, viewed them? Like, did people think they were, like, just crazier than a shithouse rat for, like, the women wearing pants? Like, did it make them seem, like, really dangerous and, like, radical? Like, how did fashion, like, make their reputation?
1: So, I love that question. One of the reasons why I like studying Renata so much is because they had the, their own newspaper that they published. And so there's so much information in there to dig into. And they talk about things like this, clothing and identity, all the time. And I found one article. It was like more of a kind of response to a letter that had been sent in. Some visitor had come and written an article about them. So they'd just like enter their community as an outsider, make all these observations and notes, write it up and publish it in the mainstream press. And that person was really harsh about the appearance of the women. Um, and we see that often in a lot of these conversations about people in these alternative groups. You know the women being like frumpy. The Oneida women had their hair cut short into like a bob, and talking about how awful it was. It was hideous to look at, and these ugly dresses that they're wearing, and they're just like an embodiment of like, you should not look like this. This is a problem. And a woman, there's a woman allegedly that wrote a response in this article. I don't know who wrote it for real. Who's saying like. This person came into our group. We didn't come out and seek their approval or their feedback. Like, you're coming into our space and you're really judging us on this. And no one in our community is seeking your opinion or your kind of approval. So what right do you have to accuse our women of having an ugly appearance?
0: So she basically said, like, get fucked in, like, 1850. (laughs) (laughs) speech.
1: Basically, yeah, it was one of the best, like, research discoveries I've had. Um, I was like, yeah, tell it, tell it, tell it.
0: S- uh, tell it, fucking Oneida sister. Don't ever let them fucking talk to us like that.
1: Yeah, and they were like, we're not trying to push this outfit on anybody else either. Like, and I'll the-
0: shove the scissors that cut my fucking ugly bob up your taint if you ever talk to me like that again.
1: You know, but they still let people come in, you know.
0: Oh, that's nice
1: no banning of the outside world.
0: So then basically they're like, let's start a silverware company and get out of Dodge.
1: Well, they already had all these successful things. Like they were really successful in their agricultural practice. And like they had started out making like metal traps, I think for animals.
0: But they were like, we just got to cash out basically.
1: We're not going to live communally anymore. We're not going to do this. We're just going to take the capitalist money route and go.
0: Maybe that's what the GOP will do. Maybe like they'll like, take the MAGA off the red hats and just become, like, a hat company? Like, just, like, a really great, like, hat company that just does, like, really great hats? Like, when Trump goes to jail for, like, keeping nuclear codes in the basement or something?
1: I love this manifesting.
0: Obviously, you saw Wild Wild Country, right? Yes. And as a fashion historian and archivist... I just turned into Moira from uh, I do. It happens to me sometime. But um, the fuck? Like, were you just obsessed with that documentary? It was so good. Like, we're just giving like maroon, orange, like just they couldn't be a more fashioning cult. Right. I know,
1: I know. And that was one of the things that like when I first kind of like stumbled into this research and I was reading about that group, I was like, whoa, I think they're like too loaded for me to like go deep on yet. And then, of course, the documentary series comes out and I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's so much visual content in here. And like, obviously, every time one of these new series comes out, everybody's like, did you see this? I want to like dress like this and I want to like know everything about this. Okay. And I think the the like boutique obviously is a big like, space to dig into there. Where were the clothes coming from? Were they buying, like, um, we just want this colorway from this company's line and, like, custom ordering it.
0: Yeah, it was already in the 80s or the like 70s and 80s, so they probably did have, like, access to ordering, like, specific companies. There was, like, catalogs. There wasn't internet yet, but you could do, like, a lot of custom ordering, I'm sure.
1: Anytime you open a store, you can have, like, that relationship with, like, New York 7th <laughs> Avenue, whatever. I'm like, yes. order, like, I want all the red. Give me all the red.
0: So, we're about to get into, like, the FLDS. Oneida sounds like they had some sexual abuse. The Wild Wild Country group, they had some sexual stuff, because I feel like that leader was, like, he was accused of, like, raping some of the people that went to that. But the point of my question is this. It seems like there is confession and manipulation and control, if that's three of the goals of Cults or alternative communities. That, that seems like it makes it rife for sexual abuse to like be probable, or like makes it probable for it to take place.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have a power dynamic happening, right? And we see this even in like workplace situations, in relationship situations, right like when you have an imbalance of power or an abusive power, bad things happen, and it's not just limited to like. I don't know what clothes you get to wear, but like actually what choices you get to make in life and whether or not, you know, you have relationships with somebody or you have sex with somebody. This is where the research for me always gets really difficult and why I like dip in and out of some of these groups more often than others or why I haven't touched other communities because it's really like for me, definitely like as a non-member of the groups, it's extremely emotional to just hear or read about what, people are going through. So I can't imagine like as somebody who was part of those communities, what that is. Right. So it's something that is like so delicate for me to even talk about. Like, I don't want to trigger anybody or like inflict more harm because I'm looking at what clothing they're wearing and why they're wearing it.
0: Yeah. It's like, there's a lot of compassion. I feel like we are so quick to judge when we hear about things like this, but it's like a lot of people, whether it's religious alternative community, culty, whatever, and and that and this is where it is weird for me personally is, like, when I said at the beginning, like, all of us have had some relationship to something that has tenets of an alternative community or a cult. Because it's, like, deference to your leader, like, not asking questions. Like, these are all things that are part of all religions. Like, you don't question your leader and you don't ask you know, like the wrong questions, like it's just like kind of a part of it. But it's like there's a gaslighting there, too, when you're a part of something. And we've all been gaslit by someone in our lives, like at some point, like just had someone look at you square in the face and lie. And that's what's so scary about like a cult, because if you're especially if you're a young person or if you're, you know, just going through something that makes your judgment not as clear, like, as it normally would be, it can be very easy for someone to, like, find themselves ingrained in this or embroiled in, like, an alternative community and, like, not even realize until it's way too late. And I think that if you've ever seen any of these documentaries or known anyone who's, like, escaped from a cult, which I have, it's very intense. I can absolutely see how someone could end up in an alternative community and just be completely confounded as, like, to how to get out. It isn't as simple as, like, just leaving or, like, you know, there's just a lot that goes on there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, in, especially that cute Sweet series, they talk about like how hard it is for the folks who've left, you know, their experiences of this. And what's also amazing now, is like we have TikTok and there are people on TikTok sharing their stories. And like, it's really, I love that kind of like opportunity to see how people are starting to like learn how to fashion themselves again and like reclaim their identity in these spaces. And like, build up a new community, a new identity, and share, they're generously sharing that, you know, at this moment.
0: So as we move into FLDS, uh, did you see Under the Banner of Heaven with Andrew Garfield? It's based off a true story from the 80s where these two brothers felt like their Mormon church got too modern and they wanted to go back more to an FLDS thing. And then one of the wives was like, you're crazy. Like, we should stop this. And she told the church elders, but then the church elders like sided with the husband basically and we're like like, yes he is crazy and yes he should not be trying to do FLDS stuff but as his wife like you can't leave this marriage and you need to tell him that like Jesus or whatever like isn't down with this FLDS thing and that he needs to come back to like our contemporary Mormon church so then they push her back to him spoiler alert fast forward if you want to watch this but and it's based off a true story and you already know this based off of the beginning because like they say this in the first five minutes so then it's like the story of why but he ends up murdering her brutally and they are two year old child like fucking just and it's like in 1985 like it's like like it was so chilling and so fucked up but they do all these like historical reenactments of like the inception of the FLDS church fashion is like all up in that story like fat like fashion is all up in that story but the emergence of the straight dress code from like the 1950s to the 2000s, prairie dresses to plain dress, uniformity of appearance across ages and women. But men relatively like are less regulated and they get to kind of like wear whatever like farm ugly ass outfit they want to wear. And then the girls had to wear like these bumpets and braids just like, what the fuck? What happened with them in the 50s? Oh, the raid.
1: Yeah, there was the raid.
0: So it's kind of Waco, like the like the government raids them?
1: It's more like, you know polygamy is not legal so it was essentially just sort of like communicate that message and that's why it was all like so covered in the press like a very visual way of like we're breaking this up essentially I start there because that's like the earliest clear-cut documentation I have of that community and then it gives me the opportunity then to look at like well how do they dress in the 80s how do they dress in the 90s how do they dress in the 2000s right and you can see there's differences and you can see this emergence of uniformity right you can see that hairstyle starting to like come into play and there are like former members who talk about how like these things initially started as just like part of a style and if you go back into like 70s editorials and fashion magazines, you can see that kind of like swoopy bang happening, right? Like the elements are there from mainstream fashion that kind of get like brought into like, this is just how I make myself feel beautiful, right? And then it becomes like, well, everybody has to have that same hairstyle. And it has to be the way that your face looks oval, right? In that series, they have like the training video of like, here's how you make all the hairstyles work for your face. And, you know, we start to see like less prints, less lace, less any kind of like trimming, longer lengths, right? So it's all just like getting more and more strict as the leadership is changing, right? So that's the, I think that's the condensed version of that.
0: What do these styles mean for not only the people within the community, but like the people outside of the community? Like a lot of these styles were made so that they could like easily identify their members, right? Like to keep people closer, because if you make them look super fucking different than everyone else, it's easier to keep track of them because they only wear like one type of dress. So it's like harder for them to like leave. Is that part of it?
1: I wouldn't be surprised, you know, there's definitely like it does make you harder and it does like cement your fashion identity as this.
0: And it seems kind of innocuous until like, oh, OK, like I'll wear this dress. But then it's like it does it kind of seals it off. And especially if it's like not because you wanted to, it's because like someone told you that you had to.
1: Right. And one of the members said in the Keep Sweet about how like when they were like, um, you can't wear red anymore. Mm. That was their signal of like, wait a minute, what is, what, what's wrong with red? Why are we not wearing red now?
0: Was it, like, too sexy or something? Like, it was, like, too lusty yeah. or something?
1: If I remember correctly, in some material, I think it said that, like, that's what Jesus was going to be wearing when he returned. So, like, you don't want to get mixed up, right?
0: Oh, not lusty. You just don't want to be a fake Jesus.
1: Yeah. So yeah, do makes sense. Don't psych this out. And so the men aren't getting that same regulation because they're going out in the world, they're doing all that construction work, they're doing, like, their business works
0: and they don't want them to stick out too much. Like they want them to have more autonomy and power. So it's really a way of like controlling women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hate people. So the source family, they're like the shortest lived cult that you study. Cause they're only like five years. What was their deal?
1: Yeah. I think you probably would have seen maybe a documentary that was really fantastic. That came out a few years back. They're really like an interesting group because they, Centered around this leader, Jim Baker, Father Yod, as he kind of later transitioned his name into. So it was a communal living experiment. They had their own sort of like spiritual religious practices that they came up with. They had started out in LA. The founder, Jim Baker, had this very successful restaurant called The Source. It shows up in like a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. Very like big, kind of sceney spot. So they had money, but then they closed that down. They wind up moving to like Hawaii and they were encountering a lot of discrimination.
0: And this was in the era of helter-skelter, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So I had like an interview email exchange with one of the members, Isis Aquarian, who is the group kind of like documentarian archivist. And she was talking about how like, you know, the relationship of like what happened with Manson really like left this lingering Info about like, well, if you have long hair and you're a group of people together, you're a threat, you're dangerous. Mm. So then that becomes like that imagery, right? That cult imagery that we have of like, you're bad if you're wearing like robes, if you have long hair and long beards, if you're living as a group, you're danger.
0: Another thing I think is interesting is that like, like if you look through history, queer history, We learned with Professor Jen Mannion about, like, the masquerade laws and, like, female husbands and about how, like, originally the masquerade laws, like, weren't used against, like, people who are transing gender. Because first it was to, like, identify British spies, but then it got made to, like, oh, you're living outside of a gender norm and that's a, you know, that's just improper, so we got to put you in jail. But in talking about the FLDS, it's anything outside the margins. I just think that it's interesting that, like, we can see regulation in people, like, from a queer perspective and a cishet perspective, which leads me to our closing cult that you study, Heaven's Gate, honey. I was 10 years old when Heaven's Gate happened. Like, I remember Tom Brokaw breaking that story. I remember Katie Couric, honey. I think it was Brian Gumbel. It was like pre-Matt Lauer, honey. Like, Anne Curry, like, give me Anne. Like, I fucking love Ann Curry from The Chase Show. Like, they did her so wrong. Like, but I remember, like, let's go over to the news desk and see what, you know, Ann Curry's brewing up this morning and that fucking face, like that scary fucking face and those eyes and those purple diamonds and the applesauce. Not the applesauce. So, what is it? What? So, his name, what, 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 Haley's Bop? What, what, what? And they were all, and the sneakers are worth a millions,
1: Thousands, or they're trying to sell them for thousands, according to at least some sources.
0: But it wasn't on the dead bodies themselves, it was just like extra sneakers.
1: Well, I mean, that's the thing, because I read somewhere that the sheriff's office maybe sold auctioned off some things.
0: That is the most morbid shit I've ever heard.
1: I don't want to say that's definitely what happened, because I do not have the full source on that. But one text I read suggested that was...
0: That the sheriff took the fucking shoes off the dead... The sheriff's office. You know, like, there's, like,
1: car auctions of, like, you know, property that they've... like.
0: But off a dead body? That is, like, so intense.
1: So I can't say if that's really where those shoes were necessarily in an auction, but property does get auctioned off. And so it's something I want to try and find out is, like, where those goods put back into... The market. But also remember this is, we're talking about Nike even though the shoes were discontinued.
0: There was like other pairs of them that are like somewhere. So you could just say that yeah. yeah.
1: It's not like it was for me.
0: Right right right. Cuz I saw this one documentary on them. I can't remember what channel, but it was not that long ago and it was fascinating. But one thing that was really underscored to me from that documentary was like just how normal like all of these people were. Like these are not people who were born on the fringes. They were not born on the edges. They all came from like very like normal range families like or at least it seemed as such but the fashion was really important there they all had like that same short haircut and at the beginning they didn't have that short of a haircut what else did they do
1: there's some other scholars out there who also have like really done deep dives into heaven's gate and i really love the way they've approached that subject of like clothing and this because they started in like 74 and like their origin story is really fascinating and like Identity is a big part of it. And, you know, part of the fun thing about being a fashion historian, reading through other approaches, like a sociology text, where you're like, why is this person talking about the clothing? But they're not saying that this is really important, you know, like saying these people showed up and they look like the first meeting where they start to meet some new followers. They're wearing like navy blue slacks and like windbreakers, and they look like a middle aged couple going into like California on a vacation. So we go from this very normal, kind of like generic, if you will, looking aesthetic in the 70s, to kind of partnering up with this group that had like a long other history. I'm going to get derailed, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore. But as Bonnie partner dies, and like that really questions a lot of their belief structure, and then we start to see as we get into the 90s more of those like body uniformity appearance, uniformity, elements start to show up until the point at the very end when you exit the body, you have a uniform. Everybody's the same.
0: Because they thought the founder like was going to be immortal and then didn't he like die and they like kept his dead body in the house for a long time or something?
1: One of the founders. So there was like the T and Doe as their kind of one of their names. Yes. Like all the names they tried to go by like Bo and Peep and Ninkum and Poop. Um, what is going on? So the female Bonnie dies and that's when like the structure goes, but the group continues on and they reframe all of their thinking. And so that's where like uniforms and sort of like baggier clothes, the shorter hairstyles.
0: come. Up. Yes.
1: And some people talk about it. Like there's repressed feelings of like sexual identity that are playing into that from the leader.
0: Yes. Cause he was gay. They thought maybe. And so he like, didn't want to see all those like physiques
1: maybe or like the the thing that i thought was so interesting in this other scholar writes about like the body is basically like another type of clothing so if you think about like whatever your body is it's just like another garment that you're putting on and then you're putting on another layer over it so it doesn't really matter what your body looks like and that's where like a lot of that thought control comes into play right so if you're not even like acknowledging that you're part of a body and responding to your body in that very intimate way,
0: that is so cool. At the very beginning, you were like, "Well, I'm a like fashion historian and archivist, and your research and everything that you're reading about and doing, like you're going to be reading about social things, you're going to be reading about social interactions, like fashion is, like how we express ourselves, why we express ourselves, like, and especially when it comes to alternative communities and stuff, like it's just huge. Like, I'm, I'm curious that, like, if someone's interacting with your work and if they're like, well, God, like maybe it's not alternative communities in fashion that's sweet to me, but like history of fashion or what is a fashion archivist? What is a fashion historian and how can people like get into like your work?
1: Yeah, 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 totally. The thing about fashion studies is that you have to be interdisciplinary. You have to be able to like understand how this approach works and how this person or field looks at things. I really liked organizing stuff and I really liked old things. So I was working and supporting like small designers to like organize their inspiration materials, whether that was like jewelry or clothing or like textile scraps. And then I figured out through like the assistance of one of my bosses, this is an actual job that people do. They do it in like museums, they do it in design houses. And I was like, well, how do I do that? And so I Googled, and this was a while ago. And so there was only um, like a couple programs in the New York area. And so I went to FIT, did my master's in their museum studies, like fashion textile program and came out of it and was like, whoa, my brain has just exploded. I am so obsessed with how important this work is and how meaningful it is to contribute to culture in this way and like make it seem valuable to folks. That's my way that I got into it. Now, I think there's a lot more programs that exist. There's more and more starting out in undergrad where you can get sort of like fashion history classes and like museum studies, but you can also do master's programs where you get really deep into it, or you could pursue a path where you're really like trying to learn as much as you can on your own and then go into these Spaces for like specialized training if you need to. And I think there's some debate about what's best for what person, but I think that's really important. And so our job in this field is really to promote the study of fashion, see it as a valuable contribution to culture and take care of it.
0: Yes. Okay. I love that. So you're working to expand the history of fashion beyond what we see in magazines or on runways. So, what archives and sources do you rely on when you're studying all of these things? I know you mentioned earlier we loved the United because they had like their own newspapers. So There's a lot of like archival newspapers.
1: So I definitely pull into like every kind of like digitized archive that exists. And thank you to every museum and collection that's decided to put money into that process. So, like, the Shaker Museum's collection is online. The Internet Archive has all of these digitized books. If you can't find them in your library, you can read them there. There's images in the Library of Congress that are so valuable. But also, you know, I really want to, like, start digging into, like, the small historical societies in these various towns to see what, like, physical paper trails exist for this. So that's all really important. And every museum exhibition, right, that opens up and shows all these new pieces that maybe come out of the closet.
0: And then like, what other topics in fashion history do you research?
1: Just about anything. Um, I am interested in like how we train designers using like museums and exhibitions and other cultural materials. I'm also interested in how we teach people generally about fashion and this whole structure of like institutionalized learning. What else do I look at Uh, everyday clothing, sort of like what people like you and I would be wearing in any moment in time.
0: I was wondering about, like, when I was asking about the Gilded Age, like, do you ever research, like, where shit came from that they would use to make stuff? Like, was there, like, whale bones in corsets or something?
1: That's kind of, like, toothy hair, like, nail, fingernail material is in there. They also used wood and steel. Um, But yeah, it's part of, like, this investigative process when you, like, actually look at a garment from the past and you're like what is this what's this material how is it made did somebody like buy this material from a factory you know or did they like grow the plant and harvest it and like transform that into thread and like weave this thing themselves like you can take all the way back and there's just so much
0: When I was at the Smithsonian with Queer Eye a few years ago, we got to see this, like, I think it was like a lock of hair from, like, Washington or Martha Washington or Benjamin Franklin or something. There's these, like, pearls that were, like, old as fuck. And then there was these, like, garments that were in a museum and they were talking about, like, how, like, the way that the garment was, like, folded over a hook would have like damaged it too much over time. So they had to like, you know, display it in a different way. So like, what's it like to handle clothing and accessories from history? Like, is there like a standard of like, you always got to wear like a kind of glove or like be in like a darker, like non sunlight room or like, so it doesn't fade. Like what are like the rules for like handling old stuff?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, not that many people get to do it one. So you limit the handling of these things, especially when you're talking about like, things that are in museums, most of the time when I make a research visit to see those things, it's literally just to see them. Like, I don't get to touch it. I don't get to like even smell it. I'm not getting that close, you know? Like someone else is wearing the gloves or not wearing the gloves depending upon what it is and doing all of the moving of it for you. But if I'm the person that's like handling it, you really have to treat it like it's this like body, right? You think about it. It's like you really have to be delicate with this baby and like you don't want to like Have its head fall off and things like that. So you are really paying attention to it and you're you're storing it in all those like low light, no light situations. You're displaying it like that, but you're being as careful as possible and touching it as
0: little as possible. Last question. What's next for you and your work? I'm just trying to
1: rethink everything. You know, like how do I how do I do this research in a way that I can share it? that I also can get compensated for because we do a lot of intellectual labor for free when you're working in academics and research. But also how can I use that as a momentum to like, Teach people in different
0: places. Well, people are obsessed with cults. You need to write a book about fashion cult stuff.
1: I know. That's one of the schemes.
0: Like, I need you to, like, write the proposal yesterday, okay? Come on. Yeah. Uh, you got this, it. Sarah. Yeah. Which, actually, I lied, and I do. This is my final question, but we can omit it if it's, like, too controversial. But, like, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask. I'm going to, with my, I'm going to tell. Okay. You, you know what this question is. Think about it, okay? We talked about Kim K. Mm-hmm. And you're a fashion archivist.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to ask about that dress.
0: Yeah. Were you like, when you were reading that stuff, were you like, this bitch destroyed fucking American history? Or were you like, wear that fucking dress, lady? I love it.
1: I'm going to be on my little island of this and I'm fine with that in my life. But I saw it and I thought to myself, you know what? Where's that dress coming from? It's not coming from a museum, like a public institution. This is a private collector, essentially. And the private collector can do whatever they want with things, for better or for worse. And I know they did make an effort to, like, be delicate with it. And there's a lot of, like, gray area about what this communicates to the
0: public. No, I love this, though. But basically, you're saying... Because a lot of people that did that were pissed were like, "This is American history. You shouldn't be fucking with this." But what you're saying is like, it's not like it came from the Smithsonian.
1: I think the other thing that you mentioned there, and like part of that like chaos of conversation about like you're ruining American history, like a piece of American history. But like, why are you saying that Marilyn Monroe is the only person who can be part of that history? Like Kim K can also be part of that history, and now she's added more history to this dress through this process so like in that sense of storytelling and like what our history is about let's be a little bit more open to like who is on the stage and whose artifacts are being preserved
0: i mean sarah bird thank you so much for your time for your research for like coming on getting curious we appreciate you so much and this was so fascinating and thank you so much for coming on
1: thank you so much for being curious about this and letting me share it
0: you've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Benness. Our guest this week was Sarah C. Bird. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey. puh Show them how to subscribe. See you play. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious JVN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. He's a gem. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. Thanks for coming and we'll see you next time.